Well, good evening. Uh, let me add my welcome to Pete's. And um, as we look at that passage that Tamara just read for us and crack into uh, the book of Colossians, let me pray for us, ask that God will help us. This is uh, a short four-chapter letter of Paul's, but there is so much contained. It's very dense writing with a lot to unpack, as we will over the next nine weeks. So uh, let's pray that God will help us now as we come to this first section uh, in the opening chapter. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word to us. Uh, we acknowledge that uh, through it uh, we can learn how we may receive salvation and then also how we may live in the light of the Lordship of Jesus, that we might respond to your word and uh, live in a way that acknowledges his rule over our lives. We pray this evening as we begin in the book of Colossians that you'll uh, give us our minds that are ready to understand, uh, and hearts that desire to put your word into action in our lives, that we may uh, respond and live in the light of your word. If we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, a month ago, you may remember, there was the first reports of the great strawberry contamination scandal that's been ongoing with needles placed in them. More than 100 reports have now come in uh, to authorities as a result um, with you know, the contamination scandal originally beginning in Queensland and then spreading to basically every state of Australia uh, with copycats often adding to the problem and wreaking havoc on our fruit industry. And police have been faced also with lots of false reports and fake social media just to add to all the confusion around this problem for our country. Uh, the federal government has felt like they needed to act swiftly and so they announced new laws to increase the penalties for people tampering with fruit. So that's gone from a maximum of 10 years to 15 years. Uh, the government's also offered to throw a million dollars at the problem in terms of employing more uh, people that will be safety officers and check uh, the fruit that is being deployed. And of course, in the midst of all of this, the poor farmers are just reeling from all the losses, you'll have seen the pictures of just truckloads of strawberries just being dumped in open fields. Um, there's been such a scare as a result of all of this, um, including in some other fruits as well, that the demand, of course, has evaporated, prices have plunged, uh, lots of it has been removed from supermarket shelves, and a police operation has been in you know, tow for this last month with 100 officers trying to um, work out still and hunt down all of those responsible. And in what should be a peak season for the strawberry industry, um, where they're getting the results of all their hard work as they harvest and see all their produce sold, um, they're facing financial ruin, with about 120 growers, particularly in Queensland, um, being really hit by this scandal. And as all of this has unfolded, I think a simple truth has come out from it, uh, that I want to make from it anyway, um, illustrated by this scare, and that is that good fruit can clearly only come from an uncontaminated source. It's a simple idea, but if the whole chain of events for fruit that we can trust to arrive in our supermarket shelves, it has to be a dependence on the trustworthy of the people that grow the fruit and particularly package the fruit in this case. One small uh, break in the chain anywhere along the line and the fruit is contaminated and all is lost. 
And there's a parallel with that truth in our lives as we think about our spiritual growth, as we think about what we read in Colossians chapter 1, where we're told that the source of our spiritual fruit is the gospel, the good news about Jesus. Because that source is good if the message is not contaminated by wrongly motivated individuals. And we'll see some of the struggles that the church in Colossae face, particularly in chapter 2 as we get to that a few weeks down the track. But what is this gospel that is the source of all spiritual fruit in our lives? Well, it's defined for the first time in a really clear and full way in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 1, which will come up on the screen, where the Apostle Paul states, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, that is in Christ, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So here is his first summary of the gospel, which he'll keep unpacking as the letter unfolds. But if this is the gospel, that Jesus, this God-man, is the one who can reconcile us through his atoning death on the cross, then the question is, well, what fruit does that message bring? If we believe that, if we trust in Jesus and his payment of our debt before a holy God, then what fruit will that produce in our lives? What will that lead to for you and I? So our big question that I want us to consider tonight is this. What fruit does the gospel produce? What fruit should the gospel produce in your life, in my life? And the first answer to that question is this. First answer is a holy people. The gospel should produce a holy people. Notice again Paul's introduction in verses 1 and 2 as he gives his opening greeting to his letter. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. So this is a letter written by Paul. He was in prison at the time. We learn that later in chapter 4. We learn it as we read the book of Acts as well. And he's writing to this fledgling, this young church in Colossae, in the Lysus Valley. It's in an area that we would call modern-day Turkey. And this church had started out of Paul's efforts, really. He had um, spent over two years, two and a half years, in the city of Ephesus, in nearby, in this region that the Romans called Asia. It was really just the country of Turkey as we know it today. He'd spent two and a half years teaching and planning a church in Ephesus. Lots of people through the whole province had come under the sound of the gospel while Paul was doing that. And it seems that Epaphras was one of those people. He then took the gospel back to his hometown, Colossae, and saw a church planted there. And so um, in that period of time, a lot was happening in this part of the world. But notice as Paul writes to this young church in Colossae, the first thing that you notice that the gospel produces is a holy people in verse 2. Now when we read that term, holy people, we often um, think in modern day language that you know, that just means somebody that does something perfectly perhaps, you know, that they never do anything wrong. So this is a, a group of people that are always doing the right thing. But no, the meaning of holy is really to be distinct, to be set apart to be God's people, those that have trusted in Jesus who are now separate and distinct from the pagan community and culture around them, set apart because of their common faith in Christ. 
So it's crucial to grasp that this is one outcome of the preaching of, gospel, of the gospel, that sinners will become saints. And so note that the fruit is not individualistic. Certainly it can bring a person from darkness into light, but it places that person in a community of believers. They're not saved to relate to God alone, but they relate to a whole community of other people who have also come to trust in Jesus. And so the church is the fruit of the gospel. The good news produces God's gathered people. The gospel has produced this gathering here tonight. And more than that, this new community means that people who were previously strangers become family. So not only does it take people from being sinners to saints, but it takes those who are around us who are strangers to suddenly becoming family members. So did you notice how um, Paul speaks also in verse 2 about these faithful brothers and sisters in Christ in the church there? Notice that term, in Christ. That's uh, a term that means to be inseparably joined to Jesus through our faith in him. If we've trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, we're in Christ. And that has an impact too in terms of our connection with other people. And so those who have also trusted in Jesus are our brothers and sisters. They're our spiritual family. Our mutual faith in Jesus creates this kinship, this bond, if you like. And that even supersedes the connection we have with our own family. That we've now got a spiritual family of people that we relate to. Now, I think as we read the introduction, verses 1 and 2 of Colossians, we think, oh, this just sounds like one of Paul's normal greetings. Uh, he's always saying something similar like this to those he writes to. But there's a radical statement as he talks about these people as his brothers and sisters. I mean, just think about Paul's life. He grew up as a Jewish person. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, an expert in the law. He was trained that you could never even enter a Gentile's house, let alone sit down and have a meal with them. You just had no fellowship, no connection, no community with anybody who was a Gentile. And here he is speaking about people, most of whom he has never even met. And he's saying, these people are my brothers and sisters speaks with such close affiliation and affinity with them. Because this is a true identity of a person that's come to faith in Jesus. It crosses across all nationalities and races and clans if we've accepted the good news. It wipes away racial prejudices. Those Gentiles that he had nothing to do with, they're now his brothers. They're now his sisters because of their faith in Jesus. So let me apply this first point to ourselves tonight. I want to ask you... If you have seen this gospel fruit in your life, what I mean is, do you speak of the church as some separate group as if you're not part of it? Oh, you know, the church does this, or the church have made this decision, I'm not so sure about that, as if you're a distinct entity, that you're not part of that gathering that is the church. See, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, then you're part of that term that you're referring to. We can so often just attend Sunday services, speak as if it's something distinct from us that we're not a part of. We can even refer to our church building at times as if that is the church when we know that the church is a gathering of God's people who have come to faith in Jesus. The thing we're sitting in is just the bricks and mortar that's the rain shelter for God's people. We are the church. So the church is no other group out there. It's you and I as we meet Sunday by Sunday together. And I think we can find that struggle 
It's not just that confusion over the word church. Our struggle is to grasp the nature of Christian community because we live in such an individualistic age. Now, you're being told over and over all the time on TV and the radio, wherever, especially through our advertising, that you're to relate to everyone and every organisation in particular as a consumer, as an individual. What will you get out of this thing? What will they provide me? How will they serve and meet my needs if I'm a part of this thing? And so we can end up looking at the church in this way. In his article, From Lord to Label, How Consumerism Undermines Our Faith, um, Sky Jathani, who's uh, an author and pastor in America, Indian background originally, he wrote this about this very issue. When we approach Christianity as consumers, rather than seeing it as a comprehensive way of life, Christianity just becomes one more brand we consume to express our identity. And as a result, choosing a church today isn't merely about finding a community to learn and live out my Christian faith in. It's about church shopping to find the congregation that best expresses who I am. And this drives Christian leaders, he argues, to differentiate their church one from another to provide more of the features that people want. After all, in a consumer culture, it's not Christ who is king it's the customer. Well, do you think he has a point? I think this is a real struggle for the Western church today. And so when we come to a church, instead of asking questions like, what will this church provide me? What programs do they have for myself or my children? I've got to ask, is this a family that I can come and live out my faith in and serve and give myself wholeheartedly? As we change the question in that way, that changes the whole perspective on what we're doing as we come together with God's people. You know, the church is not a snack machine that dispenses stuff for you, the products that you might receive and ingest. No, it's a spiritual family that you do life with. And the thing about this is that when we grasp this understanding of the Bible, it's such a great encouragement to us. It's such a wonderful sense of belonging if we have this sense of God's church. And it saves us from something. It saves us from the empty loneliness of our individualistic age. You know, they keep telling us in reports over and over in the media that the huge epidemic, apart from um, various other things, mental illness, and there's a number of things in our society, but loneliness is huge epidemic levels in Australia and in many Western countries. Well, part of the antidote to that as a Christian, is that we're part of a community of believers, the church. It gives us a new family where we belong and we serve and we live out our lives. Well, there's the first answer to what the gospel produces. What fruit does the gospel produce? It produces a holy people. But secondly, it produces faith, love and hope in our lives. Transformative changes in our individual lives. It produces faith, love and hope. So notice again what is stated in verses 3 to 6 as Paul moves on to the next paragraph in his letter. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. See, the Apostle Paul's just um, heard news of the Colossians from their mutual friend Epaphras. 
Um, Epaphras has come to Paul. He's reporting about how the church goes, and it's largely a positive report. There's lots of great things to say about what's happening in Colossae. And so we see Paul begins his letter with this great sort of theme of thankfulness. He's so grateful for this group of believers. But then we've got to say, well, why, are, why is he so happy? What is he so thankful about? Well, he's thankful about their faith and love and hope. These are the key themes in verses 4 to 6. These are all part of the fruit of receiving the gospel. So let's unpack one, each one of these in turn. Firstly, they've got faith in Christ Jesus in verse 4. So Paul's affirming in terms of their faith that they had a true saving trust in Jesus, whereby their sin had been dealt with, they've trusted in Christ's atoning death and resurrection in their place. Faith means to be persuaded that something is true. So he's not just talking about intellectual assent here. You know, they know some truths or some things about Jesus. No, they have believed it and so they've banked their life on this thing they are trusting with all that they have they have placed their complete trust in christ and so the faith that the bible speaks about is not wishful thinking it's not some leap into the dark where we're unsure it's grounded in the gospel and the evidence of christ's life and his death and his resurrection and with christ as its object our faith is secure the Bible likes to use lots of analogies about the security of our faith in Christ, that it's like a building or a house that's on a firm foundation. It's like a boat that's in a, anchored in a harbour, securely there so that it cannot be blown about. And that's the picture of the faith that Paul has here. It's a faith that is born out of repentance in the first place. He doesn't go into that detail here. But to place our trust in Jesus, we've firstly got to acknowledge that we have been rejecting his rightful rule over our life before that moment. And we want to see him truly as Lord of our life. And that will also lead to obedience, that we, as we trust Jesus, say, well, I want to follow what he says. I need to obey his teaching day by day. That's what true biblical faith looks like. And that's part of what Paul will unpack in this letter to the Colossians. But secondly, he also wants to talk about love. Did you notice Colossian Christians express their faith in love for all of God's people in verse 4? This is another spiritual fruit that's born from receiving the good news, the gospel. Because genuine faith doesn't exist in a vacuum. If I have come to faith in Jesus, then that will have an impact. That will have a transformation in my life. One of the key transformations is that I'll have a new love for other believers, for fellow people that are trusting in Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. Faith in Christ will lead to a growth in other-centred behaviour. Give us a bond, as I mentioned in that first point. But the key thing that Paul wants to say here is that the Colossians are not selective in their love, that they love all people. And so when they come to church on a Sunday, if you like, in our modern terms, they're not just interested or have love for a handful of people that are their closest friends. No, they really embrace everybody who is there as part of their community. Now, that doesn't mean that they'll know every person the same way. My expectation is that you won't know every person in this room at the same level, have the same emotional connection with them. No, not at all. But at the same time, we're not to have cliques or divisions. We don't just favour or have interest in some and ignore other people. And that was a pattern in some of the other New Testament churches. If you've read the letter to the Corinthians... You know, Paul's first letter to Corinth is, well, you know, some of you are following my teaching, some of you are following Cephas or Peter's teaching, 
You know, you're all divided. You've got different groups and divisions in your church. But we don't get that in the book of Colossians. Paul can say to them, no, you actually love everybody in your midst, all the believers as you gather together week by week. That's a great challenge for us, isn't it? To do that well. Because true love for a group of people is not a mere emotion. It's not about a friendship that's gone for 20 years. It's actually about a desire to come together and serve that body of people. It's about giving ourselves in costly love. It's not just about thinking or feelings, but it's about actions. It's about service. And that's really what Paul is driving at too in terms of their love for one another. It will express itself in lots of ways as the um, letter unfolds. But true saving faith is more than a conviction of the mind. It will transform the heart and your love. We're saved by faith, but we're saved to love. We're saved to love other believers. Thirdly, there's a third of the great Christian virtues that get mentioned a number of times in the New Testament. But notice again, it is hope. Faith, love and hope. In verse 5, Paul tells us that the Colossians' faith and love spring from their hope. And again, uh, this is not an uncertain thing. You know how people use hope today. They say, look, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. I'm planning to go to the beach or whatever it might be. And it's just wishful thinking. You know, I'd like to think that's going to be true. I've got no clue. It's probably not going to happen for me. That is not how the New Testament uses the word hope. It's a certain thing. Notice the context is given for us here in verse 5. It's something that Paul can say is stored up, is laid up in heaven. It's so concrete, it's so secure that it's already there for you. It's already set aside for you in heaven. This is your eternal life, your eternal hope in Christ reserved for you with God in heaven. And it's a big theme, again, that runs right through the New Testament. Uh, You may know that famous passage in Hebrews 6 verses uh, 19 and 20 that speak about this hope that is an anchor for the soul, that is steadfast and sure. Well, this is what Paul is expressing here in Colossians 1. This hope is, again, grounded in the gospel because it's God who establishes our salvation uh, through faith in his Son, and he adopts us into his eternal family as his children. And one result of that certain future hope is that it should change the way we think about the present. You know, we've got a longer-term view than the rest of the people around us. We live in a society today that's all about get it now and pay later, right? We want to have everything instantly, so buy now, pay later. Well, the Christian is the reverse. Well, we'll pay now in service for Christ, and we will receive later this eternal hope that we have in heaven. We look forward to something in the future that's far greater And so that changes how we're willing to give up our life in service, costly service even, right now. For example, you may know the story of Jim Elliott, that famous missionary and martyr. Um, He went to Ecuador with four other American guys um, to share the gospel with the Orca Indians in Ecuador. And within uh, a couple of days of them being there, all five of them are speared to death, lose their lives. But long before Jim Elliott went, He had been writing about how he was willing to give up his life, about the cost of being a missionary. And he said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He's willing to give up his life. He cannot lose his life eternally. He's seated with God in heaven. And he's thankful, no doubt, for his willingness to go to share the gospel And God, 
too, even in the aftermath of that story, was good and granted the gospel to go and reach all of that tribe through his wife and um, sisters of others of that party of five. God worked through them, but they were ready to lay down their lives because they weren't living for now. They had an eternal hope. Well, look, as we apply those points to ourselves about faith and love and hope, we need to grasp um, that this fruit of the gospel, if we want to see these things in our lives, we need to truly understand the good news. Notice that Paul wants to say to us in verse 6 that the key to understanding this good news that produces these wonderful things is God's grace. It's that key word again. And God's unmerited favour, his undeserved kindness to us. We have to grasp God's grace to us so that we might truly understand what God has done for us in Christ and will change our attitude and our response and our desire to grow in him. We have to grasp that we didn't deserve Jesus' death and resurrection on our behalf, that our sin should not have been pardoned. Rather, we should have been punished. We should have been under God's wrath. But God loved us so much that he sent Christ to deal with our sin anyway, that he offered us forgiveness freely when we didn't deserve it. And that is grace. A concept that's so important. So I guess I want to ask you tonight, do you really understand God's grace to you in your life? How he's been undeservedly kind to you in taking you from darkness and bringing you into light. You know, there's a story of an attempted assassination of the first Queen Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth I in the 1500s. Uh, it was actually by uh, a woman who, dressed up as a male servant, managed to sneak into uh, court, her quarters of the castle that she was staying in, managed to actually sneak into the Queen's room and hide in her wardrobe, um, armed with a knife, she was going to burst out at an appropriate moment and try and kill her. What she didn't realise was that the Queen had lots of good servants that always cleared out any room for her and made sure that if she was going to retire for the night in a bedroom that every nook and cranny was searched. And so they found her, found her in amongst the Queen's gowns, brought her out and dumped her on the ground before the Queen. And this would-be assassin at this point realised that, humanly speaking, um, her life was gone. She should be punished, probably killed, because of her betrayal, because of her disloyalty. And so she just threw herself on the ground and begged and pleaded before the queen and asked that she might pardon her, that she might be shown grace. And Queen Elizabeth looked at her coldly and said, If I pardon you and show you grace, what promise will you make for the future? To which the woman replied, But grace that has strings attached and fetters is not grace at all. I simply ask for your undeserved grace. And the queen caught her thinking in a moment and said, You are right. I will pardon you of my grace. And she was let go. She was given her freedom. No charges were made. You might think, why would she do such a thing? Can she trust that she might be... Back the next day, shouldn't she have acted to punish? She didn't deserve to get off. She was a traitor to the kingdom. Well, I want to say to you, that woman is how we are as we stand before God in our sin. 
we're disloyal to the one who is on the throne. We're doing things our own way, thinking we're in charge. We're deserving of his punishment, indeed death. And all we can do is throw ourselves upon God's mercy and ask that he might show us grace. We do not deserve his forgiveness, but he offers it in Jesus. And you see, we can't do anything. There are no strings attached. There's nothing we can do to earn our forgiveness. There's nothing we can do to add to our freedom. It's totally one in Christ. And it almost feels wrong, doesn't it? And that's grace. Until we fully grasp that for ourselves, then the kind of fruit that Paul is talking about that the gospel will bear in our lives will not be seen as much as it would. And so we need to understand, Paul says, this message. We need to understand grace. That brings us to a final answer, a third answer to our question. What fruit does the gospel produce? It produces a holy people. It produces faith, love and hope in our lives. It also should produce servants who share the message. Servants who want to take this gospel, this good news, to other people. Notice what verses 6 and 8, verses 6 to 8 say. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit. It's growing throughout the whole world, just as it's been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Notice here how the gospel, again, it transcends geographic, cultural, political boundaries. It bears fruit and grows throughout the world. It's been doing so for two millennia. This is the impact of the gospel, not just on the individual's lives, but then as that spreads through whole communities, indeed across the world. It's got both an individual aspect and a universal aspect. It produces both fruit in internal transformation of individuals. It produces external growth of the church. And those two concepts are closely interrelated. And you know, God does this by producing followers of Jesus who are ready to share that message so that others will follow him too. He calls us to be those who are willing to share the saving message that we've received ourselves. And that's why the Apostle Paul points to the example of Epaphras in verse 7. He's the one who took the good news to this group of Christians at Colossae now. He was one of their own. He'd heard the gospel. We presume in Ephesus he goes to Colossae, he plants this church. Indeed, we think he planted Laodicea and Heropolis as well, two other churches in the Lysus Valley. This whole area of modern Turkey uh, effectively reached uh, through Paul and others' ministry. And as we look at him, we might say, yeah, but... I'm not sure I can imitate Epaphras. I mean, if he's planting churches and he's this gifted evangelist, I, I can't just sort of imitate him. I don't feel like I've got those skills or abilities. But you notice how Paul refers to him in verse 7? He just says Epaphras is a fellow servant. It's a fellow servant. He doesn't say he's a super apostle. He does what no one can do. He says he's a fellow servant with me. Now, certainly he ministered with Paul and his band of evangelists. And yes, God can and does gift particular people with real ability as evangelists. But at the same time, he calls every believer to share this message, to be ready to pass on what they've received. 
A little bit later in this letter, in chapter 4, we're going to get to verses 5 and 6 of that chapter, and we're going to read this. Be wise. This is Paul speaking to all the believers in the church at Colossae. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversations be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. And this was an approach that was taken for all of the New Testament churches. When you read the first chapter of uh, the letter that Paul writes to Thessalonica, he's writing to the church, the Thessalonians, and he says, Look, the message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Archaea, in the northern area of Greece where they were, but it's rung out around the whole world. Here was just the everyday Christians in the church at Thessalonica sharing the good news with everyone they met. So God gives us this wonderful privilege. And we might say a sobering responsibility as well as being his agents, agents to share his gospel of grace. Well, look, as we apply this final point to ourselves, I guess the question is whether we are making Christ known in our lives. Are we sharing the gospel with others? Do we see ourselves as part of God's big plan that he's been unfolding for 2,000 years, that we're just part of this continuing story, and that we have our part to play? You know, back in the year 2000, um, I woke up on a sunny morning in September uh, with my wife, Christine. We put on our fake Australian flag tattoos. We were dressed in green and yellow. We caught a train with like two million people, it seemed, out to Homebush to see the event of the year, which was the Sydney Olympics. We were going to watch Kathy Freeman run. No, we didn't see the final where she won the medal, but we did see the semi-final where she blitzed them as well. And we were just part of this huge stream of people. And there was such a sense of being caught up in the excitement of being part of this bigger thing, that we were part of the team, that we were going to support our athletes to win their medals, that we were going to be cheering them on in the stadium. And there was this sense in all the people as they travelled that you know, we really wanted to be part of this. You know, the Sydney, the Wollongong that we know today just disappeared for about a month. You know, the avert your gaze, you don't talk to anyone, you just ignore everyone around you. That had gone. People were going up and talking to strangers in the train. You never know, they could be from overseas, or they might have been from Wollongong. But everyone was friendly suddenly. They were cheering, talking. There was Aussie, 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 oi, 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 every five seconds. It was just this feeling of being caught up in something so much bigger than yourself. And I've got to say... The small contribution of cheering in a stadium, feeling part of something that's a bit bigger, is nothing compared to Christians being caught up in God's amazing plan for this world. In a much more profound way, we're part of a great movement of God. We're part of his fulfillment of the Great Commission. And we know the words well, don't we? Matthew 28, verses 18 and 19. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, said Jesus. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And so what happened in Colossae, what was spreading throughout the Gentile world in the first century under Paul and his merry men, is something that we're still part of 2,000 years later. God is continuing to send out this gospel of grace, seeing people drawn from every nation and tribe all around the world, and you are part of it. So the question is, how are you going? Are you playing your part? Are you stepping out in faith and sharing what God has done in your life to bring massive change? 
You know, many companies around the world seem to have done a better job at their Great Commission than Christians do at sharing ours. You know, Coca-Cola has fulfilled their Great Commission several times over. They've managed to stick a can of Coke in nearly every person's hand on the planet. They've got them in every unknown spot all around the world. Look, if they can do that with a fizzy drink, which isn't good for you, we've got more that should drive us on in terms of sharing the good news and seeing it go out to more people. And God doesn't need experts. So often we think, oh, look, I can't do that. Yes, you can. God will place you and has already placed you amongst a group of people and friends that you might be the only Christian amongst. And so tomorrow when you go to work or you go to uni or whatever it might be, you'll find yourself in a group of people and maybe you're the only Christian. You might be the only Christian they actually know well. And you are God's voice in that moment to share his grace. He doesn't need an expert. He just needs someone that's willing. It's a humbling truth. You know, one wit has said, I'm just a nobody telling everybody about somebody who can save anybody. And that's all it is. No less, but no more. And that is God's deliberate plan. Well, how are you going in your part? I want to say to you, as we've read this first eight verses, if you're convinced of nothing else, it should be at least this, that the gospel will bear fruit. If you share this message of grace, God will do his work. Remember, the results don't depend on you. Salvation is God's work alone. But he does call us to be faithful in sharing the message, leaving the rest to him. It'll bear fruit. It's God's work. It's his gospel that is powerful. Romans 1 verse 16 tells us the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to all who will believe. Well, we started with the question, what fruit will the gospel produce? And we've seen three things. Firstly, the gospel is producing a holy people, a people that are God's very own, set aside distinct because of their faith in Jesus. They are a community. Indeed, the church is produced through the gospel. Secondly, it produces faith, love and hope in our lives. Transformative changes that will make our outlook and the way we view other people around us so different. And finally, it produces servants who are ready to share a message. Those who are ready to proclaim the gospel. And I guess my prayer as we conclude now for each of us is that God will be producing this kind of fruit in our lives. I want to see it in my life. I want to see it in your lives. God is determined to produce it. Let's be prayerful that God will do that in our lives and that we may give the glory to him as we see that around us, as we see it in ourselves. Will you join me in prayer? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the gospel, for your good news of your Son who came and lived a perfect life amongst us, who died upon the cross, taking upon himself our sin, bearing the punishment that it deserves and being raised to life on the third day, having defeated sin and its consequence of death and being declared Lord over all things. Father, help us to see that this gospel will produce fruit in our lives. Lord, we thank you that you've drawn us into a community of believers. We thank you that you are changing us, helping us through our faith in the Lord Jesus to have a love for others, to have a hope that is sure and secure. And Lord, we pray too that you might enable us, strengthen us by your spirit, that we might share this good news that has brought us life 
with all those we meet. But we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.